Welcome everybody, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this is Talking with TK. Welcome back to the show. I've got a bumper episode today. I've got rugby league icon and legend, Paul the Chief Harrigan. When I was growing up, you know, I used to watch him for the Newcastle Knights, New South Wales Blues especially, and also the Australian Kangaroos. Despite the fact that I go for Cronulla Sharks, got to respect the man. He's a legend. Tough as nails. I used to love the rivalry he had with Mark Carroll. And I can only remember all the times in State of Origin when he was fighting with guys like Martin Bella. And I'm really intrigued to get him on, just to pick his brain about things like leadership, that 1997 grand final, the first one ever for Newcastle Knights. So I'm really stoked to bring him and be able to share his story with you. Before we get Chief on the show, just a big thank you to everyone subscribing to the show on iTunes. For Android users, you can also check out the show right on the website, www.talkingwithtk.com. There's players that you can play straight into your Samsung or any other Android device. If you do have access to an iPhone and iTunes, please subscribe and please leave me a five-star review. We've had a few bumper episodes of late to start the first week of the show. I released four great episodes, getting some great feedback from the episodes we've had with Mark Hunt, rising boxing superstar George Cambosis. I've had Robbie Madison on, the motocross icon, and also superstar surfer Mark Opelupo. So if it's your first time visiting, please go back and check out the other shows, and please let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback, so send anything you've got to Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Without further ado, here is the Chief, Paul Harrigan. My special guest is Paul the Chief Harrigan. Paul is an iconic rugby league player who dominated the field for the Newcastle Knights, New South Wales Blues and the Australian Kangaroos. With memorable performances, his career spanned over 220 senior games, representing his state and country 20 times, while also leading the Newcastle Knights to their first title in 1997. We welcome the Chief, Paul Harrigan. Paul, welcome to the show, mate. Well, thanks very much. Now, wonderful to be here. Paul, let's kick things off. Round 11 of the NRL, we've got Benny for brain cancer. And now I know that the Mark Hughes Foundation is very special to you. So can you tell us a little bit about Benny for brain cancer? and also the yeah, no, Absolutely. Yeah, Benny for brain cancer is round 11 for the NRL. That's about raising money for brain cancer. It was an initiative of a fellow by the name and a great mate of mine, uh, Matt Callender. Matt Callender was the uh, executive producer for the footy show on Channel 9, also in charge of, of recent times of all the uh, all the rugby league uh, for Channel 9. Unfortunately, he's come down with, uh, with brain cancer as well and came up with a concept, the initiative of, of raising money through the game, and that's how Round 11 started. The good news is is that Mark Hughes is you know was also a great friend of mine uh, the, the two boys have collaborated together and um, all the money raised from round 11 
the beanie for brain cancer will go to the Mark Hughes Foundation. So that's a great result. Mark Hughes, you know, that name, it's it's something that you, and his foundation, someone that you have supported for a number of years now. Can you just tell us a little bit about your relationship Mark, with Mark and the inspiration that, you know, he, he has on your life? Well, we go way back to, um, you know, our early days playing rugby league together for the Newcastle Knights. He was born in Curry Curry at the Coalfields. I was born there uh, as well. Didn't live there too long. Moved to a little bit closer to to, to Newcastle. But you know, we've like all sports people, you, you you make a great friendship. You forge that, and uh, it's really good to see that when we won that grand final in 1997 in, in Newcastle, that a lot of those boys have rallied around Husey and what he's trying to do. And and uh, a notable one's been Adam McDougall. Um, who played with him, who's got a very successful uh, business, um, you know, very much lifestyle and fitness, and he's got the, uh, the like, they're called the man shakes, and uh, yeah. what they're just about, you know, truly national, and yeah, I know he's taken it um, overseas as well, he's been a big supporter of Mark, so it's good to see, you know, that bond between sports uh, people stick together. Yeah, Paul, you mentioned that 1997 team, out of all the teams that you played for, what's the bond like with, with the guys in that team? You know, because we went through something, you know, pretty unique, and that includes uh, a tumultuous time as well with the Super League war that was fully uh, fledged during 95, 96, and in 97 culminated in two competitions. Yeah, we went through uh, a bit of of hell together, but at the end of all that, when um, in Newcastle, where we were expecting to probably celebrate our 200th year bicentenary in 97, the BHP, who was the town's biggest employer, uh, announced that it was closing and and uh, there was just a lot of, you know, it was a very tumultuous time. Um, so out of the end of that, we, we poked through and got in the grand final. No one expected us to win because we're up against our arch rival Manly who had won it the year before and many other years and beaten us 11 times in a row. We were no chance. But um, by the back end of the week, we kind of realised it was a pretty important or a, a great opportunity for us to do something you know, maybe beyond our game a little bit and bring a bit of happiness to uh, to the region. And, yeah, it did. It turned out that way. It was remarkable. And I think that helped forge a really strong bond. Just looking back at that, that game, Paul, 1997, you were on the sideline, right, when Andrew Johns, t- uh, when they played the ball to Andrew Johns at Dummy Half, right? No, i just come on not too long before that. So I my... my um, We'd scored a try um, to, to get us back in the game. And I remember I'd been on the side. I think I grabbed Billy Peden. I was that excited. I shook him around a little bit. <laughs> but um, I, I was back on the field. And I was right behind um, the boys. And in my head, I started to have a portion of my brain still on myself. Uh, you know, this is going extra time. Okay, okay. Uh, but uh, Joey, being who he is, goes to the blind and, and, and Manly had this or had this amazing defence um, for, for the last few years. Um, Bozo Fulton uh, really had them drilled and it was a, an up and slide defence. It was kind of ahead of its time. And because Joey went to the blind and they're used to going up and sliding to the open side, one of them stopped. I think it was Mark Carroll stopped because Joey went to the blind and that created this this gap that... that, that wasn't there, and of course he passed it back to the fastest bloke in the universe at those times, Darren Albert, and he ran straight through that gap, and the gap closed straight behind him, um, and he scored the try, and that was it. So that was the only time 
we were in front in the whole game was with six seconds to go. So it was a quite a finish, that's for sure. Be honest now, Paul. When you saw Joey to go to dummy half, did you think he was going to go left? No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Only a madman would go to the blind. The blind, there was only, honestly, there would be three, three four metres to the blind. Who would do that? But he, he'll tell you that he, he thought of that play, you know, before the game. Because of their pattern of defence, he felt that that was the only way to really, you know, hold them or, 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 or pull it apart. So there you go. I mean, that's one of the great things about Joey is that, you know, he has this uncanny sense and all, you know, great players um, have that. But he also has no sense of occasion where it doesn't really matter to him whether he's playing a Cessnock uh, as a kid or he's on Wembley Stadium or he's playing in the grand final. He just performs. So to him, he just... He just did what he did. He's, he just performs. He was going to the blind and didn't matter those six seconds ago as a grand final. Yeah. He just, that's what he does. Do you think that's his biggest point of difference, the fact that, you know, with the game on the line and such a risky play that he's just willing to do that? Oh, no, for sure. I mean, you look at Jonathan Thurston, when the game gets close, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get overruled. He, he gets challenged. He loves that. And and, he, and the, the more challenging it is or closer it is, the more he wants the ball in his hand. You know, that's that's just how he is. He's a great competitor. And and certainly Joey was, uh, and all great players, when the pressure's on or when it's close, as I said, they don't feel, they're in that ideal performance state where they don't, you know, feel that, um, you know, what's at stake and this burden hanging over their neck. They, they just perform. They just do what they do. Yeah. When, when you won the grand final, how many days celebration did you guys go through? Well, as I kind of said before, we'd been through a tough time in the town. Um, so when this happened out of the blue, it exploded in Newcastle. I mean, literally uh, exploded. And um, culminating by the time Tuesday come along, after the Sunday, we had a parade in town where there was 100,000 people Pacific Park all coming in, there's helicopters everywhere. It was, it was, an older fella said to me, he said, mate, I remember when the war um, finished and we celebrated, he said, this is, you know, this is, it's it's up there with it, it's just crazy. So it was, you know, everyone was ready to celebrate. It was, a, as I said, a tough time in town. So we went for a week and um, by the end of the week, my body uh, had certainly had enough. I'm, yeah. I'm not a huge drinker, but mate, I, I, I had nothing left. So it was a full week of partying to answer your question. Yeah, Paul, when you came back in 1998, obviously the, the competition was back together. You know, you had a winner from Super League Brisbane and then yourselves from the ARL winning the competition. What was it like trying to defend that crown? Did you notice that all the teams came after you a little bit more? I know it was. And because, you know, there was two comps, um, everyone was saying, you know, uh, who's going to win this year? That's that's the real winner and, and all that type of stuff. So there was quite a burden and expectation. And unfortunately for us, we um, we started well and we were minor premiers uh, with Brisbane at the end, um, end of the season. So, But we were just running out of steam. We were dropping players, we'd drop it off um, towards the back end of the year and, and it was getting harder and harder. And as I said, we had a good lead there at one stage, but they sort of pegged us back. So we were, we were joint, you know, points um, by the premiers. But as the semis went on, we, we had a skeleton staff. So it was hard. Um, and then, of course, uh, the Broncos went on to win that year. Yeah. One of the great names you mentioned before was Mark Spud Carroll. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your rivalry with that. One of the things that I did read was that in 1995, the Blues officials tried to make you room together. Is that true? 
Yeah, in there they did, yes, because um, in 1995, what happened then was the Super League War uh, caused a split. So anyone who was with the Super League, the players weren't eligible to be picked for Origin that year. So, And if you remember, that's the year that uh, Fatty Vorton took over basically um, a team of yeah, names you haven't heard before. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at going, Ben Eichen, I've never heard of Ben Eichen before. You know, it's amazing what's, what's doing. And, of course, as history shows... Uh, they beat us 3-0, one of the greatest coups of all time, Fats a genius. But uh, for publicity and to try and drum it up, they said, mate, we're going to get you and Spud to room together. And uh, I flatly refused. I said, no way, no no chance. Even though we were playing together, you know, we were still in the middle of, you know, a tremendous arch rivalry as a, on a team level, but also, you know, as a personal level as well. And then they came back an hour later, they just said, mate, I'll tell you what, you're going to, and that's it. And I, I bucked a little bit, but anyway, cut a long story short, here I am, I'm sleeping a foot away from my, my enemy, I suppose, as you call it. It was weird. It's like one eye open, what's doing? But I, I got to learn a little bit about his ways, and he's a very structured fellow, and, you know, he gets his hair cut the same time every week, and his car polished, and, and everything's got to be precision-like, and, and uh, yeah, amongst other, <laughs> other things. I mean, he's got the world's biggest feet, the big fellow. I think he takes a size 17, um, I think his big toes the size of a paddle pop, huge, huge feet. But, um, yeah, that was a real experience. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it didn't, I suppose, it didn't work too much as far as New South Wales coming back into that series and winning it. But what it did is it showed me the other side. And while we carried on this arch rivalry, um, I've got to tell you, um, in, in, in this you know, since I've retired, Spud um, is a great mate of mine, and uh, only as little as yesterday. You know, we're, we're talking, and and um, you know, wants to help me out with something, and uh, and vice versa. So, I, you know, it's just one of those great things where, you, as you expect it would be uh, during the time, you know, it's dead set. You're into it. Rivalry brings the best out in you, and it did for me. But when it's all said and done, you know, we're really, really good mates. It's just interesting that you said that because I interviewed George Foreman last week. And he was telling me all about his relationship with Muhammad Ali you know, years after they actually had the rumble in the jungle. Like, it yep. was just so interesting that two such rivals and two, two people that had such a big influence on each other's lives just ended up best friends, which is something similar with you and Spud. Yeah, because you have so much in common, you know, because you went through a similar thing together. There's a lot to talk about, you know. Um, it's great. Do you remember the first time that you and Mark kind of started the rivalry at all? You know, I kind of vaguely. He was, he was, he was pretty keen to come out and um, and, and and prove a point towards me. Like he was really he was getting in. We're going, what's going on here? This place going nuts. I think it might have been a, a city country game back in the early nineties. I don't, I'm not, I can't really remember. But um, by the second game I played him, I kind of knew. Uh, <laughs> you know, the legend had started. And then from there, it was just. I mean. Gee whiz, for uh, for a few years here, I think every time we come together, um, we just we just went straight into blow in the blue. We just had a fight, you know, straight up. It was just on. We knew that, and um, got out the road, uh, and then got on with the game. But uh, yeah, the Manly Newcastle thing, I mean, was a good rivalry for us. Uh, and at that time, we had Malcolm Reilly, who was a the the, um, the English, um, or we just come from being the English coach. And a great Englishman, one of the best players ever come out of England. And he played 
admittedly, when you come to Australia, they won grand finals there with with Bozo, which was the manly coach. So there was rivalry at the coach level as well. It was it was on. Paul, do you remember when when they asked you to be captain for the first time? Because you took over from Michael Hagen, correct? Yeah. Um, yep. Malcolm really was a coach. Um, he'd just come over. And, yeah, I do. I do remember talking about it after training uh, one time. We went to a, went to a pub and, and had a chat. And I was very keen to do it. Um, I thought I was ready. And it's a great honour. You know, I, um, I was born and bred in this town and, and rugby league means so much here in Newcastle. I mean, back in 1908 when the cops started in Sydney, you know, for two years, the Newcastle boys travelled down to Sydney, you know. Um, I don't know by horse or cart, but certainly by uh, by train. So it's really in our blood. The game started in England, but all those northern English coal miners come out to Newcastle and brought the game with them. So, you know, it's a great, it's a great tradition and honour to captain um, the team. Yeah, it was actually interesting that when you took over in 1995 till the time that you retired in 1999, it was you know one of the golden periods in Newcastle's history. What I wanted to ask you was, between you and Malcolm uh, really, what was those main sort of principles in terms of culture that you guys changed in that time? Well, I, th- I think Mel um, was a genius in the sense that, um, you know, overcoaching... Um, Tactics, we had the Johns boys, and of course, you know, Joey's become an immortal in our game now and was, was, you know, was just this amazing light coming through. So he realised that. But what he, what he was really good at, and I know that the All Blacks do it a little bit now, and they're an amazing franchise, uh, the way that they, they do things, but he basically handed everything over to us. It's all about leadership group and, and accountability. And I know in the army structure, it's a lot that if 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 I made a mistake or I didn't do something right, and I got pen, usually you're, you're waiting for your penalty. Now I didn't get penalised. Everyone else did, and you had this this sort of expectation that you know I wasn't getting fined. I got off scot free, but all the rest of the boys had to pay for me or whatever it was. So we had this self-governing uh, system uh, we had we had good enough leaders to pull it off uh, and it was just amazing you know we just we wouldn't dare let each other down and I think that made the difference guys we hope you're enjoying the episode with Paul the Chief Harrigan if you haven't yet check out our other episodes here's a sneak peek of our episode with Mark Ocalupo yeah well um, today I was just you know um yeah, just the depression thing. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people suffer through it. My sister at the moment has got it really bad and um, it's something that you can overcome. I mean, all it takes is like maybe one morning, just waking up, you're feeling a little better, get out, do something, exercise, watch the sunrise or just enjoy Mother Nature and then just build on that and you can get better if it's totally possible. Another great episode with Mark. Also, just remember to check out our other ones with Mark Hunt, George Cambosas, and Robbie Madison. If you have access to iTunes, please subscribe to I- to the show via iTunes and please leave me a five-star review. For your Android users, please log on to the website, www.talkingwithtk.com. But for now, let's get back to the show. 
Yeah, actually, one question I want to ask you, you know, you had some amazing leaders when you went to rep footy, you know, you had Laurie Daly, you had Brad Fittler. What were some of the lessons that they tried to teach you that you kind of brought back into the Newcastle? Yeah, well, we were, we were all a similar age coming through um, in Origin in 1992 when, when Gus took over the first year. We were all this young bunch coming through and and we were, you know, really keen to turn the tide against Queensland. But um, I've got to say, Gus um, taught us a lot um, in that early period. He was wonderful at getting a team ready for battle. And I think Laurie and, and, and Freddie and, and myself and... Yeah, many others learned a lot about leadership and preparing and lifting and all that type of stuff. But um, now, good leadership is really important. And you'll notice, you know, the Melbourne Storm have had some great success um, over a long period of time. And a lot of people always trying to work out why. Um, and of course, amazing coach. Um, Bellamy is an amazing coach. But also, it's they have three or four of probably the greatest sort of leaders that the game's seen for a little bit. Uh, and that certainly helps leadership um, and having that self-governance, which they do, um, I just think sets all the standards. Everyone lifts up with them. And you kind of notice that when a Melbourne Storm player leaves that environment, they don't do near as well um, as they were when they were there. So I think they're some of the things that I've learned. Yeah. With your own style, were you more kind of leading by example or were you very hands-on with the younger blokes? Um, I wasn't. A huge talker, um, but you know when yeah no when I was you know when I was when we were pumped up and ready to go, you know the boys we'd all go through a brick wall for each other and um, and you know and I was the first one to go through it you know I, I loved I loved that stuff when we were challenged and, and certainly when we were a, a club that was fledgling and, you know, we, we no one expected us to win and we'd love to ambush a, a big-time Sydney uh, Sydney team coming to Newcastle on a cold winter's day and, and, and we'd pick it up. And so, you know, my, my leadership role was very, um, you know, I wasn't dominant in the sense, okay, boys, this is what we've got to do. I, I, was, I, was, I was there and I just tried to never let anyone down and um, I suppose probably probably actions um, more than, than, than words. Yeah, well said. When you decided to retire, obviously you were injured, so you were forced into it. You know, you were one of the lucky ones that actually got a media career after. Away from that, did you struggle being away from the game? Um, in a whole, no, I didn't. Um, for about three years, I think it's normal um, for a, an athlete to skid, skid his wheels because you're so institutionalised where you wake up every morning and everything's planned for you and you know what you do and who you are and what your purpose is. When that gets taken away, uh, it's hard to deal with, even if you jump straight into any job um, that you think's good. I still didn't find too much um, excitement, even in media. You know, you're used to setting a goal and achieving it and being around and having a purpose. So it was, it was different. Um, but about three years it took me, but I, but I do have good mates and I know of lots of cases where the boys, you know, they really struggle um, with that and, and it can lead to, um, you know, a really restless mind which kind of turns into, you know, a bit of, a bit of depression and, and um, can trigger things off. So it's, it's something really worth uh, considering and talking about is, um, you know, professional athletes that are, 
really institutionalised, really govern and everything they do, then it's all of a sudden it stops. It's, 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 it's a bit hard. Yeah. Would you have any advice for some of the young athletes coming through in terms of developing skills for post-career? Yeah. Um, it, it is good to have a to have something to go straight into. Um, but the funny thing is, you get you get in this routine where you it, it, you don't really feel like you're working. If that makes sense, it's a passion. It's yeah. it's what you do. It's not work at all. <clears throat> so the boys, I won't say become lazy, but you, you, the thought of going back to you know punching the card in is a little hard. So they you know they tend to you, you tend to. Um, not sort of get straight into it and, and maybe have a little bit of a uh, poke around and a few things for a while. I, I think it's good to get straight into something is uh, is the best way. Keep yourself um, busy. But some people are more prone to those type of situations than others. <clears throat> but I, I always had a little a little bit of a um, thought ahead about what I'm going to do. And I was, I was lucky a little bit, I suppose. In terms of looking at a vision for Paul Harrigan now that you've, you know, you've been well established in the media, you're doing a lot of business work and things like that. Where do you see your life kind of heading in this next kind of five to ten years? Yeah, no, that's a good question. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, for me, I, I, at, at this point in time, um, I'm an investor at heart as far as work. I, I, um, I full-time invest. I've got a, a, a company and a few platforms that, um, <clears throat> that are around the investment realms. Uh, I love adventure and travel, so uh, I'm involved with a bit of an adventure company, and I love you know going on a on a on a trek um, a couple of times a year. I, I, I find that exhilarating and something that I can I can still do. Um, I, I, I've got a family that's growing up. I love meditation and a bit of fitness. I love surfing and bits and pieces. I mean, for me now, it's all about not. Um, it's about bits and pieces, lots of many things to create my balance because I was used to um, living or eating and sleeping one thing and trying to be, you know, good at it. And uh, that's great when you're younger and when, you, when I was playing football and even after I finished um, with a few things, you know, you had that same mentality where you just got to eat it and sleep it, nothing else. And I, I can't do that anymore. Um, I've, 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 I've learned that I'm much happier when I just have good balance of great projects that I like doing um, and not just being curtailed into one, you know, that single-mindedness that I used to have. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about habits. I'm glad that you brought it up. So how long have you been meditating for? And can you maybe just share with the audience maybe your first hour of the day? Um, yeah, no, I've, I've, um, I've been doing yoga meditation since about 1992. And, um, yeah, Every now and then it changes. Uh, I might do a bit of training first. I do a bit of early morning swimming with a few male mates I grew up with. But apart from that, um, my first hour or hour and a bit is is, um, doing some energisation exercises and some meditation. Um, And at night time I do the same. Uh, My days, you know, to go without that now after all that time is like, uh, well, I don't think about having breakfast. I have breakfast every morning and it's the same with meditation. It's not a thought now. I just got to do it. It's great. All right. Just a couple of personal questions I want to ask you. Where did you get the nickname Chief? Oh, well, that's a long time ago. When I was in under-16s playing with Lakes United here in Newcastle as a junior, um, my personality, I was really quiet. I mean, 
I'm talking ridiculously quiet. I just didn't talk too much. <laughs> if there was a group of girls over there, I'd be walking around some Katie, so I wouldn't have to talk. So I was I was a bit of a mute, so to speak. There was a movie on called The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, and there was this fellow, a big Indian chief on there, who was a who was a mute, um, <laughs> deaf and dumb mute. So it was a bit of a it was a sledge, uh, really. And the boys and I and um, you know burnt up, but it just it just stuck. So people ask me, mate, why do they call you the chief? So I'd go on this big, long-winded answer like I've just given you. But later, a fellow came up and he said, mate, look at you. He said, you're six foot four, and you're bumbling on when someone asks you about, you know, why they call you the chief. He said, mate, someone call, ask you that question again, just tell them because I tell them to. I went, why? He said, mate, they call you the chief, so why just say because I tell them to call me the chief? Oh, yeah, good. Never, I never obviously did that. But uh, a year or two <laughs> later, my first grade, I got my first game, first grade with the Knights, and um, had a great match. Got me in the match, and all the Junos are coming in. They're all going, mate, okay, Paul, mate, what do they call you, the Chief? And you, you wouldn't believe it, um, that thing uh, that that bloke said just coming to my mind. I hadn't thought about it in probably three years before, and I'm thinking, Crafty, what do I say? And I went, stuff it. I said, mate, because I tell them to. And they went, what? <laughs> so they're all writing things down. Now, okay, this place pretty confident. So f- from that point on, um, everyone was calling me the chief, thinking I was some leader, where um, actually it was quite the opposite. But it's funny how um, if you keep telling yourself something or if you create an environment, that, that, that obviously I, I did become a leader. And um, and in every aspect that of my football, um, that, that followed. So it's funny how things work out. So it was like a bit of a vision, really, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, some people will tell you that you, you just keep keep talking it up, just keep talking where you want to be or what you want to be, particularly in business. It just happens. It just comes. You've got to keep doing it, even the worst time. And that's just another example of, you know, if you affirm um, with affirmation or whatever it may be, something over and over again, it, it gets turned into the ether. And it's just funny sometimes how it gets blueprinted and, it actually starts happening. So that was a case, yeah. Paul, back in like 1993, I remember me and my brother used to watch Origin all the time together. We had, we had this big league magazine tape and they kept we kept playing it over and over because one of the funniest things on it was Martin Bella trying to fight you. So what I wanted to <laughs> ask you was, what did you do to Martin? Because he's half your size. So I wanted to know what he, you did to him to you know set him off like that. Well, it, it, I, I don't really know. All I know is that Paul Stewart and... <laughs> was in my ear, i going, Chief, get into him, go, go. And I just played the day before. You wouldn't believe it. And that and those was the only era where Origin, I think it was Monday, we played it on a Monday, and I played the day before because we'd already won the first two games. Crazy. It was just some weird rule changes that happened in that period of time. So I played the game before. The day before, they put me straight in. I'm pretty buggered, but Ciro was into me. And then... Yeah, I think he just headbutted someone. I'm not sure to tell you the truth. But before I knew it, we're just toe to toe. And then <laughs> Benny Elias and Steve Walters, who are arch rivals, uh, are flogging into each other uh, like there's no tomorrow. So yeah, it was funny. It was good. We lost. I think. I think we lost that game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul. To wrap things up, in terms of everyone listening out there and everyone else chasing their dreams, you know, you made it to the top in rugby league, and you're doing great now in business. What advice would you have for people out there trying to chase their dreams? Well, with all things, um, 
it, you've got to go to the purpose level or the reason why you're doing the things you do because that, that's got to be way up high. So when you're down, you know, at the level of trying to sort out problems or something comes, you know, that's a difficult roadblock, you've got to lift yourself back up to that purpose. Why am I doing it? Because if your reason why you're doing the things you do is, is not more important than any obstacle that, that comes your way, you won't make it. So it's got to be a really, really strong reason. And you'll be tested out. Uh, at least two or three times you'll, you'll want to give up if it's a decent goal. And I found that, that just before the biggest breakthroughs came the worst the worst tests, um, so easy to, to, to give in or fold in at that time, but somehow by the skin of your teeth um, you manage to get through and, and that breakthrough comes. So my advice would be um, if, if you're willing to eat and sleep something, if you're willing to think that what's my competitor doing right now, well, I'm doing. I'm burning that desire. I'm, you know, I'm churning it over my mind. I want it more. If you're willing to do that, um, night and day, till you achieve your goal, and when the big test comes, um, that your, your reason's stronger. It's like mathematics. You know, two and two are always going to equal four. Um, if you do those things, you cannot fail. Chief, wise words. Before I let you go, what is the best way for people to either connect with you online or continue to uh, follow your journey? Well, I've got a website, um, paulharrigan.com.au. Um, you can make contact through me uh, there. I, I kind of not real big on the uh, the Facebooks and, and the social media uh, stuff, but um, certainly through the website. And, um, you know, I update it with some things that I'm doing. But certainly, yeah, if anyone wants to make contact, mate, that would be wonderful. Chief, you've been absolutely brilliant. For myself growing up, you know, you were one of my idols, someone I really loved watching play. So thank you for joining me on Talking With TK today, man. My, my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode with Paul the Chief Harrigan. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes or Android users can check out www.talkingwithtk.com. Next week on the show, an absolute treat with V8 supercar legend John Bow. Also coming up, we've got the larrikin of cricket, Merv Hughes, as well as Wallabies legend David Campisi. So an action-packed episode's coming up and ahead. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe, share it with your family and friends. Until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.